0: perhaps most pernicious consequences that it might you might create the problem you're trying to regulate
1: away
2: a critical point to this discussion about why the CMA is uh, probably I think still even post the Commission blocking and um, booking e you know the, the most feared merger control authority on the planet at least from the vantage of Silicon Valley is actually because there's very little recourse if the CMA gets it wrong
3: So this evening we're going to be discussing the government's Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill, in particular the, uh, part one of the bill focused on digital <coughs> competition um, th- that is currently before Parliament. Uh, so The bill tries to achieve uh, addressing some alleged anti-competitive practices um, and is seen by its proponents as a long overdue set of powers to address excessive market power Uh, amongst some of the largest technology companies on the planet. Uh, There are concerns, however, uh, raised by the IEA and the ICLE's recent report, Digital Overload, that this comes with risks as well as potential rewards, particularly when thinking about issues like uh, excessive discretionary power to regulators, um, accountability for arm's length bodies, uh, for investment into the UK economy, for innovation, uh, for product change. Um, And uh, admittedly, some of these issues since the time we wrote our um, briefing on the topic have been uh, addressed, at least to some extent, by the government's amendments. But there's still, I think, some quite fundamental, tricky, core questions to answer. Um, So I'm looking forward to getting into a discussion with our panellists today. So each panellist is going to give uh, an introduction of around five to seven minutes. Um, I'll I'll time them and uh, make sure they don't go too far over. Uh, and then uh, we'll have the opportunity, I'll ask them some questions and then I'll, I'll go to you, the audience, and we have a roving mic available. Um, so our first speaker this evening is Stephen Hammond, MP, who's uh, been serving as a member of Parliament for Wimbledon since 2005. Uh, he's served in ministerial roles, roles in transport and health and social care departments. And he's also a member of the Regulatory Reform Group, um, a new group of parliamentarians that are seeking to promote regulatory accountability and have taken a special interest in the digital markets Bill. Stephen. Uh,
4: Matthew, thank you and uh, thank you for inviting me to say a few words this evening. Uh, the topic of our discussion is Does the Digital Markets Bill Threaten Britain's Economy? I think that uh, what I wanted to start with was just reminding everybody what the title of the bill says. It says it's to provide for regulation of digital markets, provide provision about competition and make <coughs> provisions relating to the protection of the consumer. Uh, and I, As you rightly pointed out, pretend, uh, proponents of the bill say we have, adap- we have an adapting digital market moving very quickly, and therefore we need to adapt and modify regulation to the changing market conditions to address competition and protection of the uh, consumer. And proponents of regulation all too often ex- say exactly the same thing, which is that regulation is necessary because, oh, this is the only way we can protect the consumer. It has very little to say about a number of other important topics that I want to mention in a moment. But implicitly, some of the time, what, what is also being said is that the consumer isn't capable of making logical choices and that the consumer um, can't protect themselves. And I think that quite often that is at the basis of regulation. And in my quote to support uh, digital overload, you know, what I made the point was that this is a significant increase in regulatory power without any proper accountability. And I have no doubt we're gonna get into some of the minutiae of the bill in a moment. But it seems to me that actually, the question and behind the question tonight is, over the last 10 years, but certainly since 2016, the increase of power of the regulator, the regulators and of regulatory power without proper analysis of the benefit to wealth creation, (coughs) consumer benefit, accountability, has become completely widespread. I sat on the Financial Services and Markets Bill. And actually, the core tenant of that, and of all the amendments that myself and several other (coughs) backbenchers put down, was actually trying to make the regulators in financial services accountable in some way, shape, or form at its very basic giving a report to Parliament, but actually trying to define its powers. And as John Penrose said at the report stage uh, last week, it is not that we want to trash standards or protection of the consumer, if that is necessary. But what the government should be keen is on better, not more, regulation and to ensure that we have some analysis, which all too often isn't there, of economic benefit versus economic cost. Is it actually uh, providing the requirements for competition properly, and is it doing so in an efficient way? And I think the other noticeable trend uh, we see in the regulatory space at the moment is the contention, and this again, was writ large during the Financial Services Markets Bill and, dare I say, I think, behind the uh, Competition and Markets Authority, is 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 the implicit contention by some regulators uh, when there is the challenge of accountability put to them that actually you, the politicians, aren't really competent to do this. You You don't have the resource to do this and you're not really competent and that it's hidden behind the argument that you are trying to interfere in our independence and our operational independence. And I do think that, and it's very basic, that is a real threat to, to markets, to wealth creation. And particularly as conservative politicians, we should be uh, fighting back against that. And I think it's worth considering the bill in the basis of the first principles of regulation – Um, when you want to introduce a new piece of regulation surely the first thing you should ask yourself is why is it really needed and what is it actually going to do and shouldn't you challenge sometimes the uh, accepted wisdom that is in front of you the accepted wisdom is that although we're in a highly dynamic digital market there are really only two great global players or three great global players and they must restrict competition well, in economic theory, of course, that may well you know, there may well be some element of that. But if you have monopoly or monopsonistic positions, um, it would depend on the barriers to entry, but also depend on the fast moving of technology, uh, and therefore the technology that may give you power at one moment may not give you power in, in, in the next moment. And I think that the key key purpose of all regulation, and certainly in bills like this, is were we were we actually uh, was there clear purpose to what we were doing. And to some element, you would say the protection of consumer. But how far should you take that? I also think certainty. Uh, It is, uh, I was just discussing beforehand that obviously Rishi Sunak has been having today an investment summit, and we've had announcements from Microsoft in particular about investment. But investment comes from the certainty of government's positions and the certainty of regulatory Uh, And one of those certainties comes from the scope of rights, powers and obligations that are placed on the regulator, to be clear. And surely one of the key problems with this bill, when you certainly wrote your digital overload, was that was not true. It would appear that the DNU initially had almost untrammeled powers with no real definition of how they were going to be operated. And I think the third principle, which again, this bill is still uncertain of although is better post the report stage is transparency the principle should be that if you give regulator powers not only should they be accountable but they should be able to show their methodology in how they make decisions against any defined criteria put to them and it is still unclear in some of the minutiae i'm sure we'll discuss later whether or not that is actually applicable at the moment in terms of the CMA powers and the DMU powers with this bill. The regulated, it should be a basic principle that the regulated should be able to see, I think. uh, And that is also not clear. I mean, I've already touched on accountability, but surely it must be fundamental in a democracy and in a thriving capitalist free market economy that if we put in place as Parliament, if we initiate and we legislate for regulation, it must therefore be beholden upon us to make sure that those bodies are accountable to us, to a sponsoring department, or to some independent audit process. And again, we have the makings of that accountability, but I'm still not clear that it's actually uh, they're visible and likely to operate in a satisfactory, satisfactory way. I'm, I'm also clear, and, and this is why I wanted to make these basic remarks at the beginning, is that this bill typifies quite a lot of what happens in other bills in terms of regulation. And one of the key reports of the regulatory reform group is that if you look across broadly our economy... It is, um, and it is all too often true that that point about who is holding the regulator to account and whether they have the power, enough powers to do so is not widely evident. Um, I think there are a huge number of other concerns we will go into about this bill at the moment. But the, I think it, you know, to, to find three more, um, one, it appears to me that big is always bad. It seems to be a basic tenet. It seems to be that there's little acceptance that the vibrancy of the technology and digital <laughs> markets means that some of the regulation you're trying to take to put place in this bill could be outdated in six months' time. And uh, it's also clear to me that the argument sometimes that capitalism drives out competition as much as it drives it in is an argument we should challenge quite a lot. I think the government amendments made this bill considerably better last week. Um, But I think we need a wider discussion on what is the balance of regulation and how that affects wealth creation in our economy.
3: Well, thank you very much for those uh, opening remarks. Um, Our second speaker is uh, Dirk O'Reilly, who is the Director of Competition Policy um, at the International Centre for Law and Economics. Where he oversees the centre's work on competition and antitrust issues, not only in the UK, but also the US and Europe. And he's also um, come in from uh, back and forth from Brussels today to, to be here with us, so we, we share that very much. Um, on the sideline, he's a, also an adjunct professor who teaches courses on law and economics, um, and he is the co author of that report we've been talking about, the Digital Overload Report. Dirk, over to you. Thanks. Thank you
5: very much for inviting me. Um, so I guess I look at this bill very much as an outsider, um, as a European, sort of looking at what the UK is doing. Um, and so I guess that's sort of where my remarks will be coming from. I want to make two points, basically. The first is what do I think are the core features of the DMCC, and sort of what what should we make about those features? So I think if you, the best way to understand what the DMCC is doing relative to other competition regulations, be they competition law or say the DMA in Europe, is to understand the, the distinction between rules and standards. So there's long been this discussion in legal circles of, well, what's the best way to regulate? Should you just have black, you know, black or white rules that are very easy to understand for firms, Or should you have standards that are much more flexible and that give, you know, plaintiffs or regulators more leeway to adapt the the law to new situations? I think if you look at the DMCC, it falls very much on the standards end of the spectrum, at least as far as digital competition regulations are concerned. It gives a lot of flexibility, especially in its initial form, it gave a lot of flexibility to the CMA. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's no no reason to believe that rules or standards are inherently better. However, if you want a standards-based model to work, you need to give courts the opportunity to craft the rules on a case-by-case basis. Otherwise, you're just giving the regulator a blank check. So I think the, the DMCC sort of made what I, what I think is a very reasonable choice, saying we're going to be more flexible than the DMA. We're not going to have this um, extremely narrow list of prohibitions. We're going to have something broader. Um, and we'll let the CMA um, craft rules. That's fine. But, but it seems that in the process, something got lost, which is creating accountability uh, for CMA decisions. And the way, the, the place where I think um, the accountability is most sorely missing is when it comes to um, the review of decisions and uh, the decision to submit those to judicial review rather than for merits review. Um, I think that's really a problem when we look at, um, at a law that's in, you know, in a very dynamic environment, that's... Um, you, you know, that's, that's putting forward obligations that are new and that haven't been applied previously to firms, and so we don't know exactly how they will play out. So so I think that's what makes the, the DMCC specific. The question then is, well, what, what should we make of it? Is that a problem, or why is it a problem? And I think the, the problem comes from one simple thing, which is many of the obligations that the DMCC would be, Sort of mobilized to create, have important trade-offs. So if we look at things like opening app stores to competition, if we look at something like creating messaging interoperability, or if we look at self-preferencing, so these are sort of free, what would become free sort of key pillars of enforcement. They have important trade-offs. Right? Opening up an app store to competition, on the one hand, it may reduce fees for users, but on the other hand, it opens up um, possibilities for nefarious actors, and it could compromise data security. Much of the same can be said about messaging interoperability. I mean, on the one hand, I think many people would welcome the opportunity for WhatsApp to inter- interoperate with iMessage. But of course, they'd only agree to that to the extent that they think that their messages are safe. And that's not necessarily the case. And then, if you look at something like self-preferencing, and you say, well, in tomorrow's world, when I use Google Search, I won't automatically have Google Maps as the location service associated with a search engine. I'll be able to choose. Um, that may be desirable in some respect, but on the other hand, it will mean that it's harder for, say, the search engine and the map service to interoperate, to sort of function together, it it may prevent some synergies there. So if you have these trade-offs, it becomes really important to ensure that the regulator has the right incentives to achieve the appropriate balance, and again, that is going to be quite difficult or it's it's less likely to happen if the regulator's decisions, if they're not subjected to um, a meaningful um, review on the back end. Um, I mean, I think the last sort of a last point is well, all of this would not be as much of a worry if the CMA's track record in digital markets recently um, had made more sort of judicious use of its discretion. So, if you look at cases like um, the Activision Blizzard merger, the CMA really was an outlier there, and it's only after the European Commission cleared the deal. And courts in the United States sort of reached the same conclusion as the European uh, Commission, and then sort of with Microsoft submitting a new remedy package, it's only at that point in time that the CMA finally cleared the deal, even though at the end of the day it seems to be, at least if you look at what other regulators thought about it, a relatively uncontroversial deal. So I think if you look at that track record, it doesn't, at least me, it doesn't fill me with confidence as to how um, the CMA will use its discretion. So, um, yeah, I think the the recent amendments go in the right direction on that, I agree.
3: Uh, Thank you very much. Um, So, our next uh, introductory speaker is Verity Egerton-Doyle, is uh, the counsel with Linklater's London Antitrust and Foreign Investment Group. She's also co-head of the UK technology sector team at Linklater's. She has over a decade of experience in advisory, investigatory and transactional aspects of competition law in the EU and the UK. And she's also been doing quite an extensive set of uh, deep dive um, into the, the nature of the DMCC bill, uh, judicial review, as well as um, done a, quite a lot of previous work on uh, the increasing enforcement by the CMA. So, very over to you.
2: Thanks. <coughs> Um, so exactly as you say, I'm a, I'm a competition lawyer, um, and I work with the CMA a lot. Um, I've spent some time working at the CMA, but primarily I advise businesses, both British businesses and global businesses, on their interactions with the CMA as well as with the European Commission um, under, um, you know, merger control investigations into anti-competitive conduct, and, and now these new kind of platform regulation regimes that we have um, in the EU, the Digital Markets Act, and, and here this forthcoming regime. So it's really that kind of experience that I want to bring to this panel this evening. And um, perhaps it will make me unpopular, but I actually want to start by highlighting what I think are some, some real strengths of the regime that this bill brings. Um, and I think some of these have, have already been touched on by Dirk. But, you know, take it drawing on the experience of, you know, working with businesses who are trying to apply the Digital Markets Act. Um, you know, the, the kind of jacket of having all the rules there in the legislation, it It's restrictive sometimes the rules don't achieve what they intend to achieve, um, sometimes they achieve things they don't intend to achieve and there's a process of working through with the Commission that you know exactly how you work that out but there are upsides to having a more flexible regime. I think you know there are three in particular that I wanted to highlight. The first is that this regime is intended to be participative. Um, I think that's really important because with you know the best will and funding in the world, you cannot expect a regulator to be able to understand, kind of get on the inside of technologies. Um, the second is that it's targeted. So I think the fact that it provides for a bespoke code of conduct for each firm does mean it has the scope to actually be much more proportionate and much more targeted than the DMA. Um, and thirdly the kind of flexibility of being able to adapt to technology as it evolves. You know, under the Digital Markets Act, um, generative AI isn't covered because it just, you know, kind of wasn't a thing when the text was settled. Um, And now the commission is kind of scrambling to try and look at AI through adjacent services like search and so on. So there are real advantages to this regime. And the reason I wanted to start with these is because they all do flow kind of directly from the architecture of the regime, which is that this is not a regime where parliament is laying down one set of rules to regulate tech, um, but it's a regime where Parliament is putting its faith in what we hope will be an independent and expert regulator to make those calls. But critically, you know what rules replied, to whom, how, that is entirely a matter for the DMU. So the DMU is essentially acting as you know, legislator, prosecutor, judge, and executioner. And I think actually administered well, the regime has scope to be world leading in, in all the right ways. It can be targeted and proportionate, and it can support investment in the UK. But there is this trade-off with legal certainty, which has been flagged. And I think that's a particular issue where you don't have much provision for accountability of the regulator to parliament or to the courts. And I think we have to acknowledge that as you've already flagged, Dirk, kind of a big elephant in the room in this debate is the stance that the CMA has taken to big tech companies over the last kind of five or so years, which could kind of mildly be described as aggressive. Um, the CMA has pursued a clear agenda to intervene in the businesses of big tech companies to kind of curtail their power. And we've seen this most prominently through merger control. And the issue is that, frankly, even for those of us who spend you know, our whole lives following the CMA's merger control practice, it has been hard over the last five years to project, predict exactly where that intervention is going to strike and where it's not. And that's under the merger regime, which sets out a much clearer legal test than what is there under this regime. So I think it's really in that context of the huge discretion um, that is granted, um, that I, along with I think many others in the legal profession, with experience dealing with the CMA and the Competition Appeal Tribunal, have have made calls to ensure that the legislation is, uh, provides for appropriate oversight of this delegation of power And the regime is really striking in how little oversight it provides for. The amendments that went through last week, of course, take some steps in the right direction, but they don't resolve what I personally see as the key issue, which is that there remains no ability to challenge a DMU decision on the basis that the DMU has got it wrong. Um, Now, proponents of the judicial review standard have said that this is standard for this kind of regulatory decision. Um, I have to disagree. Uh, While it is true that many other decisions of specialist regulators are on their face, reviewable on a judicial review basis, if you actually unpack and look at these regimes a little more closely, you can see all of them have a higher level of scrutiny than what is provided for under this bill. So sectoral regulators in the UK are subject to various different appeal regimes and they range from judicial what we call called judicial review plus which is a form of judicial review that does allow the court to determine if a decision is right or wrong um, to kind of full de novo redetermination but the critical thing is in each case the second decision maker is independent of the first and this is the same actually for the CMA's other powers that it has even under the Enterprise Act which are subject to judi- judicial review only because within the administrative process there is a fresh set of eyes in the form of the cma panel so businesses can expect to have kind of two sets of eyes on every decision looking at whether that decision is right or wrong for all other comparable regulatory regimes and that is not the case here it's notably absent But kind of leaving this argument of principle to one side, you know, one argument that you often hear is, I think you could summarise it as rough justice is better than no justice. Um, You know, proponents of this regime argue that these issues are existential, we need to get ahead, and and that allowing for a higher level of judicial scrutiny would give big tech the ability to kind of tie up the CMA in endless appeals and never have to change their behaviour. And I have to say from my vantage and my experience on CMA matters, I just don't think this is true for a few reasons. First of all, it's it's not true that JR is faster than merits end to end. So in the spring, um, we at Linklaters did a piece of research where we analysed the timelines of previous appeals under judicial review and merits uh, of appeals of CMA decisions, both under judicial review and under merits review what we found was that the average end-to-end process of JR appeals was 541 days compared to only 333 days for merits. And the reason for that is that when the CMA is overturned on a judicial review standard, the court has no choice but to send it back to the CMA to have the decision made again. And that remittal process typically takes longer than the judicial process. So the argument that it's going to be faster is just, it's just not true, in my opinion. Um, the second is this idea that, Um, there will be vexatious litigation under this regime. And I think, you know, the the CMA made representations to the bill committees, which drew heavily on their experience enforcing (coughs) the Competition Act. (coughs) First of all, I think, you know, that is quite a poor comparison. The Competition Act is an act which provides for investigations into suspected breaches of competition law. When the CMA opens an investigation into you, the entire purpose of that investigation is to find an infringement and punish you for it. It's typically one-off, it's typically historical... That is just a world away from this regime, which is, you know, as we've said, intended to be participative, and it's not a one-shot game, it's an ongoing process. So I think just out of level of principle, the idea that big tech firms would have the incentive to tie things up indefinitely is just, I think, drawing that from CA-98 is not, is not quite right. But in any event, the bill provides that directions and orders of the DMU are not suspended pending appeal. So actually, that really it removes the incentive for any vexatious appeals. And actually, perversely, I think under a judicial, under, under a merits, under a judicial review standard, sorry, there's a higher incentive to bring an appeal that isn't going to change the ultimate decision. Because if there's been a process issue, you can have the decision overturned, and then no order or direction will apply while you're in the remittal process. By contrast, under a merits appeal, actually if there were process error, the court could just correct that, fix the issue and and the conduct requirement will continue to apply. So I think that argument is just not good. Finally, um, before I conclude, I just want to say a brief word on you know who a change would benefit and the narrative that more scrutiny of DMU decisions is to the sole benefit of big tech is I think appealing in its simplicity and it makes a good headline, it has made a number of good headlines over recent months. Um, but actually, the decisions that the CMA will be taking under the SMS regime will involve really difficult judgement calls and the weighing of competing interests, and in some cases, the CMA will find in favour of intervention, and in some cases, they will not. And whichever side's interests do not win out will feel aggrieved, but the JR standard makes it very difficult for third parties, for challengers who might want to get the CMA to intervene where it's not, to appeal at all. Um... And, you know, we did another paper where we looked at cases of historical um, attempts to appeal CMA decisions for under-enforcement um, and, you know, they always fail. It's not impossible. So in practice, that means the CMA will rightly worry about appeals from big tech firms on JR, but they won't need to worry about appeals from um, challenges. So I think this is a critical dynamic to bear in mind in the context of this regime where you have no rules until the DMU makes the rules. And my strong view is that a lack of oversight of regulators is is not good for the system and it's really only good for businesses if you think the mistakes that will inevitably be made will be mistakes that fall in your favour.
3: Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, Our final introductory speaker is Matt Sinclair, who's a Senior Director at the Computer and Communications Industry Association in the UK, and he's leading their new London office. He has 15 years of experience as an economist working in government, uh, as well as in consultancy for EU institutions, major media, and technology companies. Welcome, Matt.
0: Thank you. So I just wanted to talk a little about a few issues. Firstly, about the, the nature of competition in digital markets and the, sort of, the problem if you misunderstand how, 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 the, how that process works. Secondly, I wanted to talk a little bit about the consequences if you get that wrong. So you know, like, What is the threat to Britain's economy? What's the nature of of that? And then I'll sort of of conclude a little just on um, on the kind of structural policy issues which have been talked about so so far. So if we start with the the nature of competition in digital markets, I think it's really (coughs) important to understand that the, the journey, that the kind of British official perspective on this has taken. It you know, really is only a few years ago that you had both regulators, so you know, the Competition and Markets Authority, and ministers making clear, and making clear to our, to our partners um, in Europe and further abroad, that we needed to be really careful about premature regulation uh, in digital markets, that their fast-moving nature, their complexity, emphasised the risks of regulatory over, over-intervention. Uh, or or premature uh, regulations that it might ossify digital digital markets. Um, That, clearly that has changed, right? Now, why did that, did did that, did that? And and you see, that was rooted in a history, right? You can still find, if you go look on the Guardian website, the article about whether the MySpace monopoly will ever be broken, (laughs) right? Like, this has clearly happened to waves of digital platforms. They have been replaced uh, by new competitors that could differentiate in in some way. But the argument essentially was, well, that used to happen, right, when these markets were immature, then they matured and they became these kind of settled almost utilities. Um, I think we, that kind of moment maybe crystallised around the Furman reports. That's this crucial official report commissioned by the Treasury, which I think everyone kind of sees as sort of the genesis point for the for the regular, for, for DMCC. And it's important to say, what's happened since Furman? Right, okay what have we learned well a we've learned that it is possible to crash two of the markets i think people would have most named as having mature having really strong network effects having tips right digital advertising and social media both get crashed simultaneously by TikTok. right and at the same time in the digital advertising market you get a whole wave of other entrants amazon is able to build this uh, this enormous uh, advertising business and indeed one of the key charts in the Furman review, which shows the rising market share of the, big, of the top, top two players, I think start that, those trends started to reverse almost a minute the, the Furman review published, right? Which is not to get at Furman, it's to get at, I think, a simplistic view of digital markets that they are generally prone to tipping. I think you can take a pretty moderate view that digital markets, like any markets, can there be dysfunction in digital markets? Sure. But, but how are they distinctive, right? Said that we have a, to, the, to the point that we might have a digital markets regime, right? Because we, we sometimes talk about DMCC as if the, the whole question here is, do we like this as a competition regime? But of course, what we're doing is we're saying, we need this competition regime specifically for digital, mar- digital markets. We don't think this is the right answer for the rest of the economy. We just think this is the right answer for one part of the economy. And I think what we've seen in recent years with the rise of TikTok, the rise of Amazon's ad business, with a whole load of other new entrants. You know, the next wave is going to be, you know, Disney is going to now build a digital advertising business um, in order to complement its video on demand service. Uh, you know, there'll be plenty more coming. Uh, and so I think what's distinctive about these markets is their dynamism, is that ability for people to build new networks. Uh, and I think if we reflect on that, I think it, it makes the, it leads us naturally on to okay, what are the consequences to getting it wrong? Because I think the first consequence to getting digital market policy wrong, and i won 't repeat what the other speakers have said about some of the ways I think the bill unamended gets it wrong, and hopefully thankfully the amendment's I think a pretty modest step in a, in, a right di- in a right direction on this, but get it wrong, and I think the first obvious consequence is you 'll get less of the new innovative digital services that people love and value, right? Do people like these services and these services get better at an enormous rate? And, you know, to speak to the wider regulatory to the extent we've made building lots of other new things difficult, making digital, new digital services difficult as well, you know, will have real economic consequences. People value these services and they wouldn't want to see them get better at a slower rate, they wouldn't want to lose Um, that value. Now, of course, secondly would be investment. Now, the the link to investment obviously um, isn't direct. I think we can be open about that, right? Like like you're not regulated by DMC based on whether you invest in in the UK, just the same as, you know, Microsoft or Activision owning a game studio in Birmingham doesn't affect whether they are subject to merger regulation. But I think we do need to be realistic that if the UK becomes a less attractive and over time a less sophisticated and um, consumer digital market this will no longer be the natural place to build those services right if this becomes a riskier and riskier market to do business we should not expect that we have some god given right that these services will get built here and that you know there is enormous investment in building them here whether it's you know cutting edge ai you know whether it's all kinds of commercial services offered in britain and globally they're built here by british businesses and by global companies that have invest- have invested here But I think the third and I think perhaps most pernicious consequence is that you might create the problem you're trying to regulate away. And I think this is the really critical one from an IEA perspective. It's that if you make it harder to build new digital networks because you're concerned if you build a digital network, you'll get clubbed over the head um, if, if it's successful. Or if just because you've made the process more complicated, now if you want to build a new digital service, you've got to negotiate it with the CMA. You can't just go ahead. Right? And all of those you know these are any any business right is, a, is at some level of bureaucracy right, and you if you empower all of the people who want to stop new service new, new services by having this big regulatory sword of Damocles out there that will have consequences that will have costs and if if britain if it 's then harder to build new digital networks, then all of a sudden you 've got this greater risk that uh, you have a real market power problem on your hands. Because no longer can some other, no longer, if, if one digital platform sort of starts to lose its edge, do other digital platforms come in to take their lunch. And I think that's where some of the specific <coughs> measures become really concerning. Because if you start to come in and, and specifically attack the ability to say, well, I'm strong in market X, and I can use some of those strengths to build a really exciting service in market Y, which is a classic thing that CMA has been signalled in DMCC, is going to be attacked because that's seen as leveraging market, market power. What you're actually doing is killing the basis that's been used to build new digital services. Right, a lot of the examples I mentioned earlier, like Amazon's ad business, for example, is very clearly starting from Amazon's e-commerce business. It's not something that just Amazon just creates from scratch. And losing the ability to do that, losing that ability to extend into into uh, uh, other markets, will have real consequences to ossifying that mar- that market, but also differentiation. Yeah. Interoperability, almost by its nature, requires standardization. You know, Hayek was warning about this in the 40s, right? This risk that in trying to achieve perfect competition, where every business is identical, and they complete on this perfect level playing field, what you actually do is you kill their ability to build a service that's new and different and exciting. And if you do that, it's harder to come in and challenge an incumbent. And I think the risk, and I think this is the, like, you know, so immediate risk, we lose consumer services that we value, we lose investments in building those consumer services, which drives economic performance. The real long-term risk, we undermine the dynamism of digital markets, and we get this escalating process of regulating to deal with the problems created by the regulatory threats posed by an excessive uh, um, competition framework framework without sufficient checks and balances. So I think it's really important that you know. I think we've mentioned the judicial review standard a few times. The other one I would add here is around ensuring that the bill is laser focused on consumer benefits and ensuring that there is a real, and I think again it's an area that a number of conservative backbenchers have looked at, like you know, Robert Buckland and yourself, Like this area around how do we make sure that the CMA is required to have this, business, this thing do, do work for consumers and doesn't drift into helping one business interest after another.
3: Thank you very much for that, Matt. I'm just going to do a few questions that I think have come up from this discussion and what we'll go to the audience in a minute. Um, Stephen, I'm just in starting with you on this. I suppose this tension in the heart of the bill that we got some um, kind of positive acknowledgement that the, the, the bill is designed to give the CMA a lot of flexibility, um, which could in theory be used well, but also it seems at the same time that potentially the same size the power to make decisions in the context of competing interests, competing values, be it do you value privacy or do you want to make sure messaging services are interoperable? You know, is there a trade-off between two different companies potentially that are making a claim for some some purpose? Um, it seems to me there is a bit of a tendency to give a lot of power to regulators um, by parliament you know, across a whole range of different fields. I'm wondering how, how do you see that kind of issue be that kind of like tension and, and maybe how do you in, impose the kind of parliamentary accountability when there are kind of trade-offs that, that should be made perhaps not by a regulator but um, by a legislator. I
4: think Dirk made the point that you can go for a rules system or a standard system or you know, we used to call it principles-based system in financial markets. Um, there are benefits and pros to other but I mean my, my point is that although this bill is going as and putting it out clearly down the standards line, that doesn't mean necessarily you negate away from the principles. You know, and you don't necessarily have to say we're going to order every rule, but to give businesses certainty, to ensure there's accountability and trans- transparency, there has to be inside that flexibility a certain amount of specification. And I think the concern is, you know, and then of course there's a judgment about where the level of specification is, I make the point clearly also that one of the ways that makes a standard system potentially work even better is the accountability to Parliament. And it can be as basic. I mean, one of the issues I think that we aren't confronting at the moment is we have a select select committee system which looks at department to department to departments. There is a very good case potentially for having to looking at whether that select committee system, because of the way economies um, inevitably have developed, that a lot of the reality is covered by more than one department, and therefore having some cross, cross-departmental select committees is one way. I mean, there is at the basics the, uh, the necessity for a regulator potentially to produce a report to Parliament once a year. That which, you know, in a huge number of areas, there is no requirement on the regulators to do that at the moment. I mean, a lot of them have clearly, if it's a departmental regulator, say like off what, then there's a very clear, you know, select committee. Um, what I, you know, but I think it, it is clear. And one of the challenges I think at the moment is how parliament puts more accountability of the regulators in from the basic to the more, to the more extensive, um, and I, I think one of the things we've argued, argued in the regulatory reform group is because that isn't there, then the focus sometimes of regulators moves away from consumer benefit rather into other, intre,
3: into other interests. Dirk, um, following up with some of um, your comments and, and thoughts, I suppose more from the international mm. context, I wonder if you can give us maybe some uh, key points of comparison between what you think the UK is doing in this compared to maybe the EU, the US, and, and we were talking before we started about how there's all sorts of different regimes popping up all over the world at the moment.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I think, like maybe the the place to look at maybe is the United States. So, if you want, if we want to talk about a flexible regime, the antitrust laws in the United States are that. They were passed in the late nineteenth century, sort of going after their sort of big tech of the time, and they gave. Um, there wasn't yet um, an FTC, but they gave plaintiffs sort of a very broad slate to bring cases. And it took the best part of a century to sort of flesh out what those rules would mean. For for courts to discover the consumer welfare standard, to understand that if you create these flexible rules without um, a proper way to then analyse cases and without a proper standard under which to analyse them, uh, regulators or plaintiffs would go too far. And I think that the DMCC um, probably doesn't, hasn't quite internalized that lesson, that it's very hard to, you know, it takes a lot of time and it takes uh, a really important role of courts to sort of flesh out these, uh, these flexible standards. And I would add that under the DMCC, you don't have just one standard. It's not sort of consumer welfare or reasonable, it's like in the United States. You have contestability, fairness. Um, it's not clear sort of how um, what those things will mean. If I compare that to European Union, I think in a way the DMA is way more modest. It's saying, look, at the end of the day, we don't care about big standards. There's just some practices we've come up with a list of things that we don't like and we'll prohibit them. Um, I don't know what's better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I prefer. I think um, the DMCC is coming from a much better place. Like, it, on, I think in a perfect world, you would want a regime that, it's, that is closer to the DMCCs, but there need to be some fixes that enable courts to sort of bring the DMCC to where it needs to be.
3: Um, so, already in your opening remarks, you made this uh, interesting point about uh, the, the, the perception of the CMA as being increasingly aggressive. And I think um, that, that does kind of create a tinge for this whole conversation, which is, okay, if the, if, if the general perception of the CMA was that it wasn't on the more aggressive side, then maybe giving it more just discretion wouldn't be something people questioned as much. Do you think that's potentially part of this dynamic, that the, there's a sense in which the CMA might have overstepped its mark a little bit, and therefore giving it all these powers at the same time is is unwise? Um, or is it, and, and, and therefore achieving more opposition from some of the potentially regulated companies who might feel like this is more of an attack on them than something that's collaborative in the way that um, the ideal regulatory world might be? I
2: mean, y- yes and no. So I think, first of all, for... For any, biz- any business, frankly, but especially for, I think, big tech businesses that have been through an in-depth CMA merger review process, it, it's a big transition then to the kind of think about moving from what, what really feels like a very kind of hostile and adversarial process in, into something that's more participative. I, I think there is an element of that. Um, but I think it's actually important to kind of locate this legislation in... Uh, you know by reference to the other things that the CMA does and think about you know you in terms of levels of scrutiny and levels of oversight you know you can have kind of scrutiny on the way in you know parliamentary oversight of what's in the rules um reporting to parliament and so on you can also have kind of on the way out um reporting and also through through the appeals mechanism um and i guess in terms of thinking about what is appropriate for different Um, For different regimes, I think it's important to acknowledge that actually under the strategic market status regime, the CMA will be making a lot more calls that are really inherently political decisions. You know, I think, as as was mentioned, there are clear trade-offs in each of these, you know, in each of the rules that they'll be imposing. And I think it it may be appropriate (coughs) there, you know, the CMA guards its independence very fiercely, but I think for a regime that does have a much more kind of political and almost redistributive element, because a lot of it is about taking power away from big tech and you know giving it to challenges, I think it may be appropriate for there to be a higher level of parliamentary oversight than there is for the, um, you know, competition law where the CMA has a legal standard which it is applying um, and there should at least in theory, although, you know, if, if you go if you live these processes, there are always a multiplicity of opinions, but at least in theory there should be kind of a right and a wrong answer to um, does this merger result in a substantial lessening of competition? You know, is this conduct an abuse of dominance? There should be a yes or no answer to that. There should be a truth and you should be able to try and get at it. It's often very difficult. Um, I don't know there is such a clear yes or no answer here to the questions that the CMA is going to have to deal with under the digital markets regime. And I think that that just weighs in favor of more scrutiny, regardless of how the CMA has behaved in the past. Um, and the kind of recent um, recent approach of the CMA, but certainly, you know, the, the whole reason why we're here and we're with this with this bill in the first place is we're kind of living through this age of remorse where competition authorities, and it's interesting that this bill has really come up out of, you know, if you look at the the text of the digital task force advice, um, the CMA's digital task force, it's, it's basically the bill. And I think, you know, all competition regulators around the world are living through this kind of age of remorse where they are feeling bad that they didn't kind of fix the problems of the past and that is colouring a lot of what we have today and I think it's seeing some things go too far the other direction. Um,
3: Matt, if I can bring you back in. Uh, so you, you gave the case of the firm to review a lot of um, arguing that some of the analysis has already proven out of date. But I think the, the advocates for the bill, in particular, the challenger companies that have tried to push this um, quite hard would say, OK, well, that might be the case in the advertising market to some extent, but look at all this other list of... Um, uh, uncompetitive, un- um, anti-competitive activity they're doing. You know, for example, uh, the App Store being a classic here where uh, Apple will take 30% of as a tariff if, if you want to um, sell a, a product on the App Store and or oh, something around 30%, and that is um, conduct that's unfair. And they'll, they'll go through, and, and indeed, they're key advocates of the bill to MPs and ministers saying with, with a list of activity that they think um, is wrong and bad and that uh, consumers could be benefited um, and certainly, so their competitive position could be benefited um, by by taking down some of the tech companies and making them um, behave more fairly.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like, it's important to say, I don't think the case should be that there can never be dysfunction in digital mark, digital markets. Right. The um, I think that the goal, the question should be like, what is your regulatory goal? Right. Is your regulatory goal we need to step in with sort of, uh, as much ambition as we can, as fast as we can? Because I think that you, there's I think a lot of people would like a regulatory regime that moves faster, but you need to kind of distinguish between two kinds of fast, right? Like one is I'm going to you know, be genuinely fleet of foot and I'm going to kind of run through this sort of in an agile way through this forest. And the other way is I'm just going to run at this forest and every so sort of I'll hit a tree, right? <laughs> and I think that, you know, so if this bill had been been supposed to, imagine the world where this bill is, we're going to create the DMU, we're going to fund it, and we're going to... Um, uh, give it the kind of new analytical tools it needs because it is addressing new and more complex markets, uh, multi-sided markets, which are really quite <coughs> difficult, different to some of the areas it's had to address before. I just don't think there's a lot of controversy, and I think a lot of tech is great. You know, they, they, it is a, can be a problem for them engaging with people with regulators that that understandably struggle to address them, their their markets. But I think instead of you're saying, okay, the way we're going to get to speed is by you know reducing uh, the extent to which incorrect decisions can be appealed or by reducing the the, the analysis required on consumer benefits i think you, then you're in like let's run through the wor- woods and hit the trees every so often world and i think that that so, in terms of, sort of the specific market practice you're looking at i think we need to remember that the that this that's multiple models exist in these digital platform markets so if you look at app stores are a, good, are a great example right there are multiple answers out there um some uh, are more have a tighter integration between um the device and the and, and the app store some have a looser Uh, integration between the device and and the app store, and there is a really important process of market discovery about which of those is best, and there are reasons for consumers to prefer one or the other. Now you might need to, for competition policy reasons, step in and say there is a right answer, right, like you may get to that point, but you should be doing that as warily as possible, because you're removing, and you know, so so, and, and uh, you know, this may happen. We don't know if this obviously we don't know if anything will happen the DMCC, <laughs> so It's the nature of the bill, right? Like it will depend on what the CMA does. But certainly, that's something that's been done by elsewhere is to insist you shall not integrate your app store and your, your phone. But like consumers have chosen to have chosen that with both options in front, in front of them, right? And there are upsides and downsides. And I think taking away consumers' ability to choose and therefore taking away that process of market discovery, we have to, I think, just respect the costs that's going to impose in terms of both dynamic competition, but also just you know, actually getting to the right, the right answers of the technical and other trade-offs that Dirk mentioned. Did you want to quickly add something?
2: Yeah, just, I mean, I think I think the, the, those two approaches that we'll, we'll come that to you, questions
3: from the audience in a second, so...
2: ..that you mention. Are, I mean, it's interesting because I think the issue is you see both from the CMA. Yeah. So the CMA's, uh, you know, initial report on its AI, yeah. um, on its foundational models um, review is actually very much what we want to do is guide markets in the right direction. We don't want to intervene unless it's necessary. You know, we have humility about why about these being nascent markets that we don't fully understand. And then, you know, on the other hand, in some of the kind of merger enforcement, you kind of see the absolute other end. And I think that's that's where the uncertainty comes for the businesses and where it becomes difficult to predict and therefore difficult to kind of plan investments and so on because, you know, which, which CMA are you going to get? And I think when you're giving so much power, you need a bit more um, a bit more direction and oversight.
3: OK, let, let's come to questions from the audience. I think I'm going to... We're, we're kind of limited on time, but I'm going to try to take three questions at a time and then we'll come back to the panel. So this uh, f- question at the front here...
6: And if you'd say your name and uh, any affiliation. Yeah, sure. Th- 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 thanks, Matthew. Uh, my name's Shane Frith. Um, I'm the founder of a tech startup called Wona. And listening to this, I, I want to ask the panel about the-, the question that's posed in the title here, does the digital markets bill threaten Britain's economy? Because listening to some of what's been said today, and combine that with the recent online harms bill, it doesn't reinforce my hey set up your company in the UK versus set it up elsewhere, particularly the US. And I think we've got to ask the question: Why is there no major tech company like Facebook and Google and so forth that set up in Europe? You know, they've all set up in the United States, and just the um, based on probability. Uh, There should have been something over on this side of the Atlantic and it just hasn't happened. And it's a cultural thing. And look, as a small startup, we don't go live until next month. Um, I'm sure we're not going to be subject to the regulators next week. But my investors do look at this because we compare it with, we look at people raising money in the States and they seem to have a far easier time than we do here. And it's because investors invest in a company like mine. There's a good chance I'll fall flat on my face next month and it won't work. They invest because they want to know that if we're successful, we can be huge. And the message tends to be here in the UK and in the EU that there's a ceiling you're going to get to before they're going to turn around and say, well, look, you're dominating the market. Because quite frankly, I want to dominate the market. (laughs) (laughs) And everything I'm hearing here says move to the States. Um, I'll
3: take another question uh, just the gentleman behind you
7: Good evening it's uh, Fred de Fossard from the Legatim Institute Verity and Stephen's points about accountability and parliamentary oversight got me thinking about what might happen and what you, the panel might think happen in the House of Lords when the bill gets there from next week Uh, Usually the House of Lords hate executive overreach. The Delegated Powers and Regulatory Reform Committee wrote repeated reports during the pandemic of government by diktat accusing the executive of uh, essentially using the House of Commons like an elected dictatorship. Yet when it comes to this bill, which has huge Henry VIII powers, massive flexibility and discretion for the regulator, there hasn't been much of a peep of dissent out of the House of Lords so far. And the one select committee even saying the JR standard has to be protected at all costs and the CMA is fully marvellous um <laughs> do you think this is the what, what do you think is going to happen do you think the lords will finally find some um uh, issues with the bill or will it be waved through with a little scrutiny much as it did in the commons until your intervention at report stage uh, and there's a
3: gentleman over here on the left side of the
8: room hello tom smith from gerald partners i'm a competition lawyer a bit like verity um i just wanted to ask the panel do we really think that over-enforcement is the biggest risk here? Um, we talked, uh, obviously man- mentioned the Microsoft Activision case, which is a very good example of something that seemed very painful. Um, but it was cleared in the end. And then we have other cases such as Broadcom VMware this year that the UK cleared. Brussels have imposed all these conduct remedies and other, other regulators around the world made mischief over that too. You have a merger from Booking.com this year cleared in London, not in Brussels again. Amazon iRobot, cleared in London, still going through Phase 2 in Brussels. So I'm not sure it's that clear a a story that the CMA is the aggressive person and everyone else is not. Um, The other difference, as, as was rightly pointed out, the DMA in Brussels has a list of do's and don'ts. Whereas in the UK, the CMA can't, really do, can't do anything at all unless it proves its case, goes through whatever appeals we end up with and, and gets there. So do, they, do the panel think over-enforcement is the most likely thing here or will it actually uh, very little enforcement happen?
3: Why don't we come back to the panel? Um, Stephen, do you want to come in first, maybe? And I know you have to leave relatively soon on this point about where it's going in in the House of Lords by by your assessment. What is the next kind of parliamentary stage on
8: this?
4: My best guess is that the House of Lords will be a lot more muted, as you say, on this particular than others. I suspect it will uh, revolve around full merits versus JR. If you look at the arguments the Labour Party were bringing forward in their amendments, um, I think that is probably going to be the issue. And the issue around proportionality and when that can be used as a test will appear to be, to me, the things that are going to happen in the House of Lords uh, in terms of their challenge back on, on this bill. More, more than anything else at the moment, it feels that way. Mm. Um, to gentlemen gentleman, Mr Frith um we need to keep finding ways to make sure you invest in the uk and one of the um one of the issues you know to the point I, i'm not a lawyer so i'm uh, nor am i an expert in the cma as i've proved this evening i know much more about financial regulation than this sort of regulation um but the key the point i've been trying to make is that actually we must ensure that there is not a regime that's flexible but it's certain uh, so you know that so one of the reasons you'll have your investors is at least, I'll know what the structure of the regime is, which has um, been, a, I think, a, has been a problem, and we've seen that happen just recently in another area of the economy, which has caused some disruption, I think, and some major problems.
3: Uh, Very,
2: yeah. I mean, on 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 that, taking that point first, I think, you know. As I said at the top, that there's the potential for this regime to be really well-leading and in the right ways. And I think there's, you know, with a regime like this, there will be an uncomfortable period where you don't quite know where it's going to go. And I think in that period, that's where the kind of appeals and being able to set, you know, being able to get the regulator overturned if they get it wrong is so important. I mean... My hope is, if this comes to a good place, that you know, over over time, we see, you know, if you see the CMA behaving reasonably, you see these codes of conduct operating well and proportionately, actually, it will it will look like a good model. But there's, you know, there is going to be an uncomfortable period, and that's where being able to overturn the regulator if they get it wrong is so critical. Um, the other point, just picking up on your point, Tom, that I want to come in on is, you know, is the CMA really such an aggressor? Um, I think a critical point to this discussion about why the CMA is uh, probably, I think, still even post the commission blocking um booking eTriveli, you know, the, the most feared merger control authority on the planet, at least from the vantage of Silicon Valley, is actually because... There's very little recourse if the CMA gets it wrong, if the CMA makes a decision you don't like. Now, you know, the Microsoft case is kind of truly exceptional in, in many ways, but in generally, if you look at the track record of appeals of CMA merger decisions, on which are on judicial review basis, um, first of all, the CMA has only been overturned on, irration, you know, irrationality once. Um, that was in JD Sports Foot Asylum. And it was the case was remitted to the CMA. They went back, and the CMA made the same decision again to prohibit the merger again. I mean, the CMA has been overturned a bunch more times on um, on other other kind of more procedural. I mean, irrationality is the closest to merits that you really get in judicial review. CMA has been overturned a bunch of times on procedural decisions. What happens is it's remitted, you go back, and the CMA makes the same decision again. So you have this painful process of being prohibited twice. Um, and so I think that that reason, the, the lack of you know ability to challenge CMA merger decisions is the reason why the CMA is the most feared authority on the planet in Silicon Valley. Um, and I think that, you know, you have the risk of the same thing here.
3: Jack, uh, I'm wondering if that comparative point again, is, is the perception of the, the CMA that we've
5: put out here accurate mm-hmm. in your view? Um, so I think I think it was, it was a really good question from Tom, like, is you know, will we get over enforcement or under enforcement? And I think in a way, probably, Focusing on the CMA alone is probably a mistake because I, I think actually Tom, Tom the, the point Tom makes is well, well you, you don't make it for the same reason but <laughs> but you you have to look at the at the question globally and if you have the CMA blocking one deal here Brussels blocking another deal there I think what cumulatively is happening is we're creating an environment where tech companies are more and more becoming sort of Um, their comparative advantage becomes regulatory compliance on a global scale, not just being good at engineering new products. I think that's sort of the big risk. The question then on over-enforcement, under-enforcement, I don't know if we're over or under-enforcing. I think that what we want to make sure is that the rules that we pass, that we have a feedback mechanism in them, to know whether we're over-enforcing or under-enforcing. I think the great, for me, maybe maybe this is my point of view, but I think that if I look at antitrust or competition law, what I like about that regime is I see cases, parties bring evidence, and if the evidence is compelling, the plaintiff wins the day, or if the plaintiff's evidence is compelling, they win the day. If not, they don't. Um, that gives us a feedback mechanism. We can see cases and we see, well... The regulator loses all the time, so maybe they're bringing, they're being too aggressive, over-enforcing, or they win all the time, which means maybe they could actually push the boat out a bit further. Um, I don't think that will happen very easily under the CMA, uh, the the DMCC as it's currently uh, written. And, yeah.
0: Matt. I just kind of come in because I think whatever points we make about the DCMA as it stands, I think a crucial question here is what impact will this bill have on the DMC, DM, on the DCMA, right? And I think, I mean, Verity, I think, was the one who called it quasi legislative, so I've been borrowing her language on this shamelessly, but like, the, um, I think if you give this body quasi legislative power, in a very direct way, right? Like, like, Powers which, in say Australia, a country not entirely dissimilar to us, were passed by a government, and to the extent the competition authority was involved, it was they were asked to help design the legislation that would then be passed by parliament. And instead, that power is going to be in the hands of the uh, the CMA. This is the where, news, discuss, news publishers. Yeah, exactly, the news system, Media yeah. bargaining code, right? But there's other examples uh, out there, right? Like things which, and because the DMA would be another example, right? Like a whole load of of requirements which. In the EU, have been laid down as legislation and agreed via the EU's um, complicated process to agree such such things, right? For all the advantage we might see in terms of flexibility, that power is political, right? <laughs> Quasi legislative, like, and it will be politicising. And I think that whatever we, th- we, I think there's a lot of people who think, who, who have a sort of patriotic pride in the CMA and British regulators, right, but that, if, the more you give a regulator political decisions to make, the more it will become politicised inevitably, because it will be making decisions about, about uh, that affects the balance of returns between consumers and business users, between different kinds of business users. And I think that comes down to, Shane, just to conclude on Shane's question, which is the thing that I think, one of the things that really worries me about this bill is it will change the criteria for success both between new and uh, existing businesses, and between existing businesses, it's going to make success more a matter of regulatory affairs. So to take newspapers as an example again, I think British newspapers have been great for a very long time by living or dying on their relationship with readers. If instead they live or die based on their relationship with the Competition and Markets Authority... I think it's just really profoundly troubling about the kind of economy you start to create. We're gonna make regulatory affairs companies uh, and you know, that may be inevitable in some sectors, right? If you've got a natural monopoly, that might be very hard to avoid. But doing that, for, to come back to my self-fulfilling prophecy point, creating that because you've, 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 you've impaired this process of dynamic competition, I think has real consequences. And I think we need to take that seriously. Um, because you go down this world where whether your business succeeds or not comes down to its CMA revenue. It's, it's, it's engagement with the CMA. Um, uh, not its ability to thrive in the market. Uh, and I think that that's, that's why we worry about this kind of regulatory power questions beyond the kind of principles of law.
3: So there's a, there's a few more questions in the audience, but Stephen, I, I, if you needed to leave uh, at any time. Quarter past. Um, uh, quarter past, five more minutes with you, um, excellent. Um, just, uh, there's these three questions here on the. Um...
9: Thank you very much. My question's off twofold. One is perhaps aimed more at the lawyers on the panel. Which is, I mean, you know, I have a deep dislike of the way the Sherman Act has operated, including the fact it was originally designed to be incredibly narrow. And the judges, perhaps relevant to the last question, ran with it and defined it incredibly narrowly. But how I don't quite see how having judicial review would solve the problems of this act, because you're creating all these different, very vague principles like fairness aren't you essentially just replacing assessment by a random regulator to a random regulator and a random judge? Surely you have to have a more tightly defined set of requirements for judicial review to be anything other than the, like the COVID inquiry, We you have a judge doing it. It doesn't magically make it a different process. The political one, which is perhaps for the more to the, you know, the campaigner of the MP, it's what explains this? Like, there's been this huge talk about how the CMM has got massively more aggressive, how there's been a huge shift away from sort of 80s-style neoliberal market system over the last few years. What, like, I thought Matt was very good at sort of describing the history of it, but where's it come from? Do you have any theories as to what's going on? that it explains, there it hasn't been a change of government or anything, so what explains this radical shift in the British system from being clearly more free market and less interventionist to the EU to arguably being more so? Uh,
3: just next to you, yeah.
1: Uh, hello, now, Andrew Ludicco from Europe Economics. Um, the, the question I have is about uh, is the following: the the um, bill seems to be quite clearly based upon a particular and novel conception of how competition works in digital markets, the, the sort that uh, uh, Matt was just spelling out before. I'm, I'm gone. I oh, know. I'm back. Um, the now, I wondered to what extent you might think that that would be expected to and have to, in principle, influence the way in which the CMA responded to the, uh, to the powers that it had. So to the extent that it's built in to the conception of the measure and that parliament sets out, it endorses a particular theory of, um, of competition, is, is it not likely that the CMA would feel obliged as a consequence of that in, in, in um, its implementation of its powers to reflect the conception of competition in these markets upon which the establishment of these institutions were based.
3: Uh, and the gentleman next
10: to you, again. Uh, Tom Burroughs, I'm the group editor of Wealth Briefing. We cover private banking and, and sectors like that. And I suppose my interest in this topic is, is more towards the fintech end because obviously there's so much crossover between technology and finance, and I'm sure that the Member of Parliament here probably would agree with me on that point. From a banking and sort of financial services point of view, the thing that occurs to me is that is there not any kind of risk of with the sort of what appears to be almost like a sort of precautionary principle that's sort of worked with how these the, this organisation may operate, that what, you could also end up with another problem, which is a form of regulatory capture. And I hardly need to sort of spell it out to the IAA. You sort of wrote the book on it, almost literally on this problem. But how much of a risk is there that that eventually the industry sort of almost Ends up using the whatever entity it is that's in, given all this power to sort of raise the sort of the barriers to entry and, and, and sort of create a kind of moat, as it were, around itself, which might be obviously damaging to the, the UK in, in the broader sense. So, how much of a risk is there,
3: Stephen? Do you want to come in, uh, respond to those questions, and if you have any concluding remarks as as well?
10: I think the the, the
4: political point you're raising is fascinating. Is when did, when did that mindset change? You know between 2010 and 2016, um, there was the initially one in one out regime and one in two-out regime, and to a certain extent, that did place discipline on ministers when you were bringing forward I mean I sat in regulatory committee. the slight worry of course, was that you got rid of the you brought in you know something that affected the digital world of the day and you took out the eighteen ninety Donkey Act <laughs> 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 and you think I'm joking. Um yeah that did happen and several so you know it wasn't working as well as it should, but the pressure on um, parliamentary scrutiny and accountability without that being there and also looking at efficiency, I think you can some of the pressures we're seeing now, and some of the, the pushback um, from myself and other colleagues about why Parliament needs to be more involved in accountability is coming from the fact that that regime died and was never replaced by anything. And therefore, we then had, a re- we then had regimes which um, have allowed you know, greater power to regulators. Um, we have, I think, forgotten in a number of areas the benefits of... What privatisation brought, and therefore over-regulation of some of those industries, without remembering what we what we took into private. Now I know privatisation. You know, 40 years ago that process started, but we shouldn't forget the dynamism, the dynamic, the dynamic impact that had on the British economy, and we shouldn't forget you know, the deadening influence of the state trying to dictate how it runs businesses, and/or the state trying via competition authorities to direct which businesses succeed and which shouldn't, and that I think is the other the other point. It sort of slightly leads into the the gentleman's point about fintech. If you set up if you set up levels that are too high to enter, or you take the view, and it comes back to one of the points I was making earlier, there has it there is in the financial services world now. Um, no, almost no concept of caveat emptor, and one of the problems, particularly, is saying that you can't, you, the British, the British public are not capable of understanding particular types of instruments or vehicles they may want to invest in, and therefore, you, know, you, you, the public can't invest in that. The consequence of that is boiler houses in, in Nicosia set up.
10: Well, suitability is a big problem. FCA loves it.
4: Yeah. There is a real issue about, you know, I mean, straying into a different area, but there's a real issue about whether the SCA should regulate wholesale and retail markets and the different competencies that requires and the different impact. And that's a, that's a continuingly live, live debate.
3: <coughs> Stephen, we better better let you go, but I also want to give uh, everyone else an opportunity to... Turn Apologies. To no, no, that's OK. You've, you've got parliamentary duties call, so <laughs> yeah. we uh, very much appreciate you taking the time out um, to, to be with us. Dirk, um, if we can come to you on this question, uh, you mentioned really and, and highlight quite a lot this judicial review question. But yeah. um, does that go far enough in terms yeah. of addressing underlying issues? If 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 the core yeah. you know principles yeah. in which the regulator is making its decisions, um, and they're trying to make these trade-offs yeah. that have, as you've said, distributional or or um, you know ethical trade-offs, do we really is it any better that going to the you know a single judge as opposed to going to a Set of regulators. What well, does it matter?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's not. There's no guarantee that that even that would uh, would work. So I think the the Sherman Act point is is good. Where when the Sherman Act was passed, people didn't understand consumer welfare like we understand it today. We didn't have modern microeconomics. So that that sort of arrived afterwards. And there's, I think it's fair to say, there's an, an element of ex post rationalization that then occurred to sort of reinterpret what what the Sherman Act meant. Would that happen with things like, or would that or will that happen with terms like fairness, contestability, where we, we don't really know um, what those mean? Can that happen in in the future? I think it's at least a possibility. the um, The question will be, well, what are going to, you know, if if that's going to happen, we'll need some sort of guiding pr- principles of what we want to maximise. And I think. Even if the Sherman Act didn't understand consumer welfare, there was an understanding of we want um, more competition and lower prices for consumers or some variation thereof. I'm not sure we're quite there yet with digital markets. I'm I'm not sure we understand exactly what we want to maximize. Um, So, yeah, even with some changes, I think um, courts would have their work cut out i I just
0: right? going to say, like, uh, just to start with uh, that kind of governance, kind of apologies, I'll answer the lawyer question and I'll, then I'll answer your the question I was supposed to answer. But I, I think it's just uh, a baron competition authorities as it stands now have an absolutely enormous potential scope, right? Like, that is not going to be kind of created with this bill. Like, indeed, I think there's not it's not obvious to me there's a lot of things that the CMA can do with this kind of legislation which in theory, in principle, after a, you know, market study it couldn't do now, right? So so competition authors have always, and even to say this does expand those, have always been entrusted with enormous power. Um, That's why they tend to have a lot of process around that power to limit how it's used, and also why uh, every effort is made to ensure that power is exercised in the interests of the general consumer interest and not parochial business interests. Uh, and so that's why I think, I do think we shouldn't just focus on, uh, you know, on judicial review versus merits review. I think the, uh, how the evidence framework and how consumer benefits are integrated into that, I think is the other crucial part of the story here. Uh, while in, in principles, everything the CMA does, you know, should be out there to, to serve consumers. Having it properly baked into the framework matters. Uh, ensuring that when people appeal, that they uh, that, that they can uh, at every stage point to, for example, uh, countervailing benefits which might uh, justify a particular you know market pra- practice. Mm-hmm. At the moment, that can only be done in by this you know there was this risk. That it can only be done by this slightly wonky. You must intentionally break your conduct requirements, and then you will later come back and appeal to countervailing ben- ben- benefits <coughs> and hope that you, that, that, that the court buys that, which was just, you know, an obviously impossible thing for any risk-averse corporation to do. Um, I think having that, you know, you sort of improving those are really important for exactly the reason you're talking about that, that, you know, uh, just having a better review standard on a, a fundamentally broken process wouldn't get, get us there. Uh, in terms of why it's happened i think there's really two reasons one is i think to some extent politics understandably lags the market uh, you know i think that um, what i hope is that we don't bake a kind of problematic competition policy in before people kind of really and sort of think seriously you know if you if it didn't alter your view of how digital markets work a little what you know if you start from this view of like, Hard tipping and you know network effects, and then TikTok happened. It kind of has to mean that you think again about how powerful that might be, or Amazon's ad business, or any other countless one of countless examples. Um, I think the other reason that I think is important is that a lot of businesses are dealing with problems. Actually, I think more connected to an excess of competition, but just generally through transformation in digital markets. If all of a sudden, instead of consuming a certain media property, I might you know go play Fortnite or I might go watch TikTok videos or whatever it might be, that can create real problems if you've got an a sort of established media, media business. And those problems might have real social um, democratic even you know, concerns, you know, consequences. But that's not a problem of an absence of competition. It's in many ways a problem of too much competition, but it leads people to kind of, have, I think, a bit of a kind of closest, influential people, a bit of a closest sticks a hand solution. Competition policy is a weapon I can use in this circumstance. I am feeling aggrieved in terms of my market position. Therefore, I'm gonna look for competition policy to satisfy me. And I think there's a real risk that they do that under this regime. And I think it has in part led to the reassessment that's kind of created this regime.
3: Right, Fred, come back, bring you back in. I, I think just your thoughts on that question about is ju- um, removing and, and or going from judicial review to full merit review enough? If you're still just then expecting the courts to make these distributional decisions.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point, and I think that's probably this, you know, one of the strongest arguments in favour of maintaining a um, judicial review standard. That you know these decisions are kind of inherently political, but I think that there are fixes that we could put into the regime that would would fix that problem and I mean before getting into those I want to say first of all you know what is the probability of the CMA getting these things wrong I think it's really high so if you look at um, I mean first of all there's the kind of Sherman Act point we've got you know if you take um, we don't have such a long history in the UK as there is under the Sherman Act of you know interpreting the Sherman Act but we have a long history of interpreting competition law um, and you know a sense of how it should go and, and still um, the authority does make errors. Um, we we don't have anything like that here. Obviously, they're starting from a blank slate. Um, but then there's additionally a timing pressure imposed on the CMA because there's a de- you know there's a nine month um, timeline for making a designation decision. The pro-competition intervention process is only nine months. Now, actually, the pro-competition intervention process is one where there is a legal standard in there, which has you know where we have a series of case law determining it, which is you know what is an adverse effect on competition. Um, but where the CMA makes that decision, otherwise, it's typically it well, it's after a market investigation which runs for at least eighteen months, if not two years, and typically follows a market study which runs for a year so you're thinking these decisions that would take the CMA three years to make um, now the CMA is being asked to make them in nine months and so I think the, the probability of the CMA making actual errors and therefore there being a need for a standard of appeal that does allow the court to say that was wrong I think there's a high probability of that but then you know, coming to your point of, you know, is, is an unelected judge better than an unelected um, regulator? I think maybe just to conclude with two really practical suggestions. I mean, one is I think there's scope for further specification within the bill itself about what it is specifically that the CMA has to prove. So the amendments that went through last week saw some improvements there, but I think there's scope to improve the wording of the bill, you know, to be clear about what evidence, the C- you know, the standard to which the CMA would have to have evidence in order to impose a conduct requirement or find a breach of that requirement to impose a pro-competition intervention. Um, The second is, because these are inherently political, I think it really would... uh, I think there really is a good sense in having whatever political oversight there will be of this bill actually formalised so that the political oversight is not informal, kind of backroom you know, impossible to predict, um, but there's a formal mechanism for it. So if you look at, for example, the National Security and Investment Act, you know, that that is a regime where, you know, th- there is rightly a lot of discretion because it deals with national security issues, but there is a process for an annual report and there's a process for accountability to parliament and there's nothing kind of formal... I mean, there was a proposal for that... Um, put forward by John Penrose, I think, but there is nothing formal in the regime at the moment. And I think actually because these are political, you know, it, it is different to the other decisions the CMA is taking. And the political oversight should be transparent rather than being um, hidden.
3: So we have a few, just a few minutes left. I'm going to take a few final questions. that um, here at the front.
8: Thank you. My name is Fatadranovskaya. I work with Hewonot
2: and Strategies. I um, have a question, was mostly for Verity, but maybe the other speakers. Um, On the one hand, I hear a lot of arguments that um, the CMA needs more time to take decisions, but also there were other arguments made that um, businesses in the UK, especially for investment, need legal certainty. So how do we square the circle around that? And maybe one specific question, or just follow up, because I wasn't very sure on the argument that Verity made about um, big tech not likely to prolong the process. Uh, could you provide some clarification on that, please? Because I think previous examples, such as the EU DMA, they've just launched the bill process. Um, what is happening in the Netherlands as well, South Korea shows that gatekeepers or SMS firms are actually trying to prolong the process for appeals.
3: Uh, next, the, over here at the end.
2: Hi, Chloe McEwen from Microsoft.
3: Um, We've
2: been having this conversation against the backdrop that we haven't articulated, which is uh, Brexit has happened. And so I wondered, I'd be quite interested to hear your views on how you think the regulator that we're discussing here, the CMA, should should play that role also against the backdrop of government policy. And when we have government policy taking account of Brexit, for example, articulating, we would like to be a science and tech superpower, we would like to encourage investment, and maybe taking into account the strategic steer that's recently been published, it'd be really interesting to hear your views on um, how we look at that.
3: And then, uh, well, I'll take these two questions as very, just make them both brief uh, here at the front, um, and then at the
1: back. Thanks. Hunter Debose from Spitfire Capital. I commend Shane's ambition for his new venture to achieve massive market dominance and (laughs) wish you Godspeed in achieving that. (laughs) However, um, I think circumstances are very different when a foreign state actor can use the market dominance of a digital uh, provider. For example, as seems to be the case with TikTok and the Chinese government. Um, And I'm curious if the panel can comment on what safeguards and mechanisms are in the, the bill right now to prevent that sort of thing.
3: And just at
4: the back. Hi, Oscar Hayward from Latham Watkins, another competition lawyer in the room. Um, the, there's a bit of an asymmetry between the muscularity of the powers that the CMA will get versus other competition regulators in the world. Two specific examples, the structural divestments after a PCI and the forced experimentation powers that the, the CMA will get. Are these paper tiger powers that able will use just in the posing mirror of public opinion? And could this cause a half that
5: UK version of products and services?
3: Okay, um, we're, we're kind of running to time. So um, uh, we'll go to each panel just to give a, an opportunity to answer that question or any uh, or many questions. There are a lot of different things to pull out uh, or any kind of concluding remarks you'd like to make for you would like to... Yeah, sure. So I'll
2: take the one that was specifically directed at me, um, Just to, and let me give a really practical example of, of why I think there's not an incentive to bring vexatious appeals under the regime as it is. So directions and orders of the DMU will not be suspended automatically pending appeal. They'll only be suspended if the tribunal orders that they are suspended. Um, and so what that means, if you say that the CMA has made a procedural error in the way that it's imposed a conduct requirement, for example... Uh, or say, to, you know, put the way that it's implemented, the final offer mechanism. So say that the CMA has made a decision that, um, you know, Meta should be paying publishers a, a certain amount um, pursuant to the final offer mechanism. If there was a procedural error somewhere, in, and the final offer mechanism is one where there are many, many, many steps in the process, right? So it, it's quite conceivable there could be a procedural error in there somewhere. If there were a purely procedural error, but nothing else, um, the incentive of Meta to bring an appeal against that decision would be actually quite limited because at the end of the appeal, because the order wouldn't be suspended while the appeal was pending, and at the end of the appeal, what you would expect the cat to do is you'd expect the cat to just, you know, f- fix, fix the error to the extent that it could um, if, if this were a merits appeal... Now, under, actually, perversely, I think, under judicial review, there is more of an incentive to bring an appeal because when you get to the end of that process at the cat and the cat says, yes, indeed, there was a procedural error here which was, which was quite, quite critical, um, the cat can't do anything but send that back and send that decision back to be remitted and for the process to be run again. So I think that that means that perversely there's actually more of an incentive to bring a... It wouldn't actually be a vexatious appeal in this case because it would be on a process point, but bring an appeal on a point of process that doesn't change the ultimate outcome, um, there's more incentive to do that under judici- under judicial review than there is under an appeal standard where the court is able to correct the error. Um, so, I mean, just to give one final point, you know, there's a case that I've been involved in, um, which is a, you know, pharmaceutical excessive pricing case where the president of the cap says in the judgment very clearly we've identified an error that the cma has made were this an appeal on judicial review there is no doubt that the cma's decision would be done and we would have to send it back to be remitted but this is not an appeal on judicial review this is an appeal on the merits and therefore i'm the cat as press as the cat we can we have the evidence to fix this decision and we can fix it and probably but you know by doing that they've saved frankly, you know, years more of process of go, having to go back to the CMA as one of these other similar cases did. So that, that's why I say that, that the incentive to bring vexatious appeals, I don't think exists um, under this regime.
3: Matt, do you want to come in just on, on those questions? Of, just if you'd couple, like to do uh, the Brexit
0: one, we almost yeah. got to a whole evening without speaking no, about Brexit. I'd say just a couple of things on the international point, and i like to just address the question about some of the other sort of elements in the bill. So on the international point, I think there's two kind of concerns. One is clearly there's been this imperative um which is i think in part driven the kind of haste for for this bill to sort of uh, a race to define digital digital regulation and i don't think that's coming from nowhere right like if a regulation is kind of proportionate effective defines the rules of the road getting there first could be a source of comparative comparative advance right here we're talking about a very different setting where, A, we're not going to be first, right? The DMA is going to beat the, the, the UK, UK there. And B, there's hugely potential to get it wrong. And so I do think there's a world where, you, where the right question for the UK now is not how do we win the, win the race to just be first, but how do we get to a regime which, in its execution... Other countries will look at and say, this seems proportionate and effective and worthy of emulation. Because I think the more that it looks extractive, and I think this comes on to so the second concern internationally is certainly that we've got these kind of quasi-legislative distributional chat decisions being made in the UK. These decisions may have international consequences, right? They may offend the EU, they may offend the US, they may offend whoever else, right? And it's, the things are being made by governments and ministers. They have an ability to balance because, you know, like at times it might be it's important to do something that upsets the EU or upsets the, the US, but that's a political decision. Those are trade-offs which properly belong with ministers, with parliament, and I think there is a real concern that sort of a couple of years from now you've got the CMA doing something which seems unreasonable in, in, internationally and there is just not going to be a lot of cause to, for, for, to correct that. Um, there just isn't gonna, that structure isn't going isn't to be there. Uh, and just quickly on, on sort of forced sort of forced experimentation, I, it does worry me that the kind of accelerated processes this has been through in, parli- in, in parliament and the nature of the parliamentary debate, to some extent, has meant the, that some of the issues we've talked a lot about today, unfortunately, like, like, you know, they're, they're important issues like the uh, judicial review versus merits review has kind of sucked the air out of the room on some of those issues. Because uh, yeah, look, I think it should be troubling that the CMA is going to be able to step in here and say you must change your service in order to kind of test out potential interventions or you know learn more about about the service. And I think it's very it's going to be very concerning for companies being regulated because of course if those experiments lead to things going wrong, they I think they're going to be very concerned. They're going to be the ones who who take the blame. Um, and so. Yeah, absolutely. There are some details in this bill which, you know, look, fingers crossed the Lords can have a look at as this moves forwards. Um, which so far, unfortunately, you know, we have everyone's sort of had to focus on these big tickets debates over, you know, checks and balances essentially in the regime. Um, I think you could say the same for some of the consumer law changes here, where like no you know, Sort of unite the sort of news media industry and the tech industry in concern uh, some of the changes to consumer law, but they have kind of flown under the under the radar because of this this big picture debate. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there is a need for wider scrutiny to come back to the title of the things. So, you Jeff?
5: Yeah, I just wanted to make two quick points on the vexations appeals idea. I think there's a little bit of a um, a fallacy in. In the way sometimes this, um, this argument has been portrayed, it's been portrayed as, well, when firms appeal, it's basically going against the interests of consumers. If they push back against the regulator, it means that consumers are going to lose because, of course, the regulator is doing what's in the best interest of consumers. I think that that's not the right way to look at the problem. Sometimes the regulator will be correct and an appeal will... Um, you know, could could go against the interests of consumers, but the opposite could equally well be true. The regulator th- makes the wrong decisions, and firms ultimately appeal, and that is in the interests of consumers. Um, the second point which uh, Verity raises, which I think is really important, is that here, appeals won't suspend uh, the decision. So I don't think firms have much incentive to appeal other than they think that the regulator you know, made the wrong decision, and so they are going to push back against that. And sort of, if you agree with my first point, that could be very good for consumers. So I think, yeah, we we need to be a little bit careful. And a a final thing is, you know, I don't think anyone would raise that point in other areas of law. So when I see a criminal law case, no one says, oh, you know, someone who's accused of a crime shouldn't be allowed to appeal because basically he's denying the victim's um, uh, reparation or postponing that reparation. I don't think that's... um,
0: just, 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 well, just, very quickly on, just very quickly, actually, on, if you don't mind, apologies. Very quickly, in. and then I'm getting signals from the back. I think, uh, think it's also important sorry. to say that like, I, I think the Commons has been thinking about this problem, and I think Sir Robert Buckland proposed a compromise which I think could work for everyone here, which is at, at the start, when the CMS is making ambitious decisions in a complex market with new powers... Have merits review so that the courts can scrutinise how it's using those powers and make sure that it develops its use of them properly, and then shift to judicial review down the line, so, so line uh, to assuage those concerns that this becomes a, that this isn't able to be used going forward. I just think there was a there's a compromise on the table on this point, leaving aside some of the principled arguments, which uh, I think would have achieved what you're kind of looking at.
3: I, I think I, I better um, finish up the panel there, but it's been an excellent discussion, and thank you as well always to the audience for your great questions. Um, we'll see if see that's set out, but again, thank you to Stephen, Verity, Matt, Dirk. Um, and if you have enjoyed this, please do grab a copy of our paper at the back, and uh, we look forward to continuing the discussion over a, a drink in, in the office. Thank you.